Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host... David Boris. If you read or listen to the news today, it's almost impossible not to hear references to the Red Sea, Houthis, maritime commercial shipping, etc. The Houthis, a non-state Shia Islamist political and military movement, have controlled key parts of western Yemen since the Yemeni civil war broke out in 2014. In response to the recent Israeli attacks on Gaza, brought about by Hamas's brutal attacks on Israel in October 2023, the Houthis began launching missile and drone strikes at cargo ships entering the Red Sea. This is shipping destined for the Suez Canal. The Houthis claim to be aiming their strikes at Israeli shipping as a show of support for the Palestinians. But as it turned out, they seemed to be targeting a variety of shipping actors. And this threat to global shipping has prompted a significant response from the international community, including Canada. Yet, Canada's contribution to this response, or lack thereof, has highlighted some serious flaws in our current naval capabilities and, frankly, in our general military capabilities. Today on the show, we have brought on guest Christopher Roberts from the University of Calgary to talk about the history of Canada's involvement in Africa with a particular focus on the period of the post-Second World War peacekeeping era and our naval contributions in the post-9-11 era. This is a fantastic discussion where we spend quite a bit of time talking about the current state of Canada's military in an increasingly volatile world and explore some of the lesser-known Canadian military operations in and around the continent of Africa. This is Season 9, Episode 11, Canada, Maritime Power, and Africa. Christopher Roberts is a fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and an instructor in political science at the University of Calgary. For over 30 years, he's worked on African-related security business and development issues. 
He's currently the administrator of the Global African Navy's Research Network and has an article coming out with Rob Hubert on Canada and African maritime security in the next issue of Canadian Naval Review. You can follow him on X, formerly known as Twitter, at C.W.J. Roberts. Now, the Canadian Global Affairs Institute is Canada's most credible source of expertise on global affairs. Established in August 2001 and based in Calgary and Ottawa, the CGAI is a registered charity which comments repeatedly in the media and publishes extensively on defense, diplomacy, trade, resources, and development. You can check out CGAI at their website, cgai.ca. You can also listen to their podcast by subscribing to the show, the CGAI Podcast Network. Okay, so before we dive in, everyone, we need to understand that Canada's first overseas military participation was, in fact, in Africa. In 1885, during the Mahdi War, where about 300 Canadian voyageurs, a mix of First Nations, French, and English Canadians, helped a British force navigate the treacherous cataracts of the Nile in the failed attempt to relieve Khartoum. Canada had a much larger presence in South Africa during the Boer War from 1899 to 1902, where battles like Paderberg and Lillifontaine created a burgeoning sense of military pride in Canada's armed forces. However, Canada was largely absent from Africa during both the First and Second World War. Yet, the post-war period would see Canada return to Africa in a variety of ways. And I begin my conversation with Chris by asking about our post-Second World War return to Africa and if it was part of a specific policy shift in Ottawa. I wouldn't maybe argue that Africa itself was um, becoming more of, let's say, a strategic focus for people, either, you know, policymakers or military leaders in, in Ottawa. But Africa was becoming uh, more important geopolitically because it was no longer, as we saw in the 50s and 60s, it was no longer going to be controlled by France, Britain, right. Portugal, etc. The empires were falling apart. So now you have independent countries. Um, and so Canada, as, as because of its Commonwealth connections and eventually because of the, the Francophonie, Canada is one of the few Western industrialized countries that has this almost preset relationship, potentially, with much of the continent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, interesting things happen in the, in the 19, early 1960s that a country such as Ghana, which Canada has always had a very special relationship with now, Ghana becomes the first country outside of NATO and South Korea because of the Canadian connections there. The first country that Canada would actually send a military advisory training team to oh, in, wow. that, in that Cold War in that Cold War period, right? And it was Ghana. And eventually some other African countries, many other African countries wanted Canadian military assistance. There was no budget, there wasn't much of an appetite, but a, but a handful of African countries ended up with that kind of military training relationship with Canada in the 1960s. So that's just one example of um, Canada. Not that Africa was ever, you know, a strategic focus. Uh, there was never really sort of a set policy. We're going to do X and Y in Africa. But Africa's, the development of, of independent African states and Canada's growing development relationship with African states uh, turned into security relationships, eventually turned into maybe trade and eventually in the 1980s, 90s, mining investment. But um, 
Um, partly, it's not because of the Commonwealth having some big policy, but Canada's, you know, its bilingual background fit well in right. the post-colonial environment in Africa. Right, and I think, if, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the Congo was another situation where bilingualism, or, or they, they were requesting con- French-Canadian soldiers, is that? Am I yeah, exactly. So, um, originally, when uh, the, the basically what becomes the first, let's say, robust Chapter 7 uh, UN peace operation, which eventually turned the Congo from 19, later in 1960, Canada was offering to send a battalion of, you know, regular infantry battalion. And effectively, the planners at the UN, and I think probably even within parts of Ottawa, decided, no, 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 what we need is we need highly trained people to work the communications in this giant country. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we need we need radio operators and communication enablers. And we need some French speakers. So instead of sending an infantry battalion, Canada sends communications, command and control, logistics, and not everybody was frank, francophone or bilingual, but with a, a large francophone contingent. Again, right. that's sort of this, the value added that Canada can bring uh, right. to a continent where those two languages are still, you know, the, the major European languages in use. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I know we're going a little bit back in time, but I, I think it's worth discussing the Suez crisis and the the response by the UN, you know, how does that play into future deployments? You know, how does that set a model for Canada in in, in the future cases like the Congo? So what, what is the relevance of the Suez to all of this sort of, th- this period of peacekeeping as we we call it? Yeah, there's there's so many interesting implications of what everybody now understands is, you know, the Suez crisis and the first significant UN peace operation. Mm-hmm. There had already been peace, you know, there had already been observers in, in, in you know, in the Middle East, et cetera, and, and other places in the world before that big operation. But to solve this crisis within Western alliance that was threatening to become a crisis of, of between the West and the East, this, this the attempted re- National, the, the attempted reoccupation of the yeah. Suez Canal by the French and the British uh, with the secret agreement with the Israelis. Uh, this was a time when Canada was still very close to the British, you know, very close, right? And yet we ended up through, you know, Lester Pearson, everybody should know at least some of that story, but through Lester Pearson and others, we ended up being on the side of the Americans. Right. And the Americans under Eisenhower were saying, sorry, we're in a new world. You can't just try and reassert uh, in this new world, uh, your desire to control the Suez Canal. And as part of that process to help the British and the French withdraw, the idea of an interposition force that was not going to shoot anybody, it was just there to patrol the border between effectively Egypt and the Israelis, oversee the withdrawal of the the, the French and the British troops. And Canada says, yep, yeah, we're going to participate in that operation. So the very first chapter six, what we think of traditional peacekeeping is in relation to Suez, which of course is related to post-colonial um, disengagement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's related to Canada's shift to s- more leaning towards the Americans versus the British, which is a which is a change. But it also is we have to figure out a way not to just focus on um, NATO and 
Germany in terms of where Canada's in military uh, deployments were going to be, we have to be a little bit more aware of our capabilities to deploy globally. Right. And and what is used to actually ship over the first major contingent of the of the Canadians' participation to the United Nations Emergency Force? It's an aircraft carrier. That's right. It becomes a, you know, they strip the weapons off and they pack it with troops and airplanes and vehicles. And that's the last mission for the Magnificent, right? So, yeah. um, so anti-submarine warfare, you know, our, 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 our aircraft carriers up until 1970 mostly were focused on anti-submarine warfare. Did they ever have to shoot at a submarine? No. Were they deployed in operations elsewhere in the world in, in ways that they weren't conceived for? Yes. And that's yeah. the nature of sea power. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that, I, I love that story. How the how the magnificent is delivering supplies. Certainly not. I'm sure what many of the senior officers on the magnificent were were thinking of the role that that that, that great ship would play. And and I think this is a really good segue because so far we've really focused on land commitments. Uh, and but I think it's worth pointing out that obviously we have three branches of the military and they're all being used. Do you think you could talk a little bit about our naval and our air commitments during this period as well and how they fit within this interpositionary uh, peacekeeping model that was developing in the, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s? So 1956-57, the Suez mission uh, creates this model. Again, unfortunately, what Canadians still think of is what peacekeeping is when, it, when it's right. absolutely shifted away from that as the typical model. Um, what do you need to deploy? You need ships to get people there. You need aircraft. You need heavy lift or, you know, you need a good long-range um you know, capability in the RCAF, which they have, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they're able to deploy. You also need helicopters, et cetera. So you, you really have a combined arms deployment to UNEF, you know, which is, which, is, which is good. What we see over time is Canada's deployment on UN operations is less about troops on the ground, you know, infantry battalions, and, you know, armor, sometimes some recce, et cetera, some armored cars for, for observations. But what the United Nations and what other countries really want from Canada on most of these UN deployments, whether they're in Africa or elsewhere, is Canada as an enabler. Uh, and that is using sea power for maritime lift. That's using air, you know, air cargo. That's supporting tactical operations, air, fixed wing, et cetera. Communications, engineering, medical, logistics, right? So so Canada has always been a value add in all of those ways. And and, and is in, in addition, our Army, Navy, Air Forces, even when there was the CAF and there was no Army, Navy, Air Force, um, the garbage bag uniform days, of which I was a part of way back, um, the, the ability of Canada to have uh, joint operations and combined operations both you know internally but also with all of our allies and the interoperability that's always been a huge value added too right anyway so all of that said um the ability of canada to play a role in global security and you know not just peace operations but just in global security it absolutely requires the ability to be expeditionary and right. and and having canada's you know, having a big army for Canada, uh, unless we're on, you know, those those intensive operations, for instance, First and Second World War. There was periods in the Canadian military history where the Air Force was larger than the Navy and the Army, right? So in mm -hmm. terms of the total personnel, because Canada's a big country and we've had all sorts of these um, operations. So being able to be, uh, being able to actually contribute 
to international peace and security, both directly for, for the U.S. and their NATO allies, but just on a broader level, mm-hmm. does require Canada to maintain that kind of deployability. And I think that's something that we might get to, that yeah. we're seeing that there is a, we're losing some of that ability to influence, and that means we're less relevant to other players at the table. Would you say that then one of the features of Canada's let's say, second half of the 20th century military is that we were able to operate or provide value both in air, on sea, and on land on a relatively consistent basis? Um, Yeah. I mean, Canada participated. We obviously had large contributions, you know, on the ground in Europe as part of NATO. And even when we pulled back and we cut it in half right under Trudeau in the late 60s, early 70s, it was still a fairly significant deployed um, force. What that meant is if you're going to have a deployed force that large abroad, you needed to have all the other sort of ability to, to sustain it and mm-hmm. to think about in the event of a, in the event of a chapter five declaration under NATO, how are we going to, you know, support that, especially in the Northern part of Europe. So, so having those capabilities for NATO actually allows you to have deployability for other issues. Right. And I think that is another part of, of um, we see this happen again in the 2000s when we gear up for the operations in Afghanistan, where it's, of course, no planner anywhere right. in D&D ever thought we're going to have to maintain a effectively a brigade group in Afghanistan at some point in the near future. That would never be on anybody's radar screen. Mm-hmm. But because we ended up having to do that, for at least a while in the 2000s, Canada did have uh, created some real capabilities, but we've actually let that kind of decline over the last decade or so. And I think that that's problematic. But going back to, let's say, the 1970s, 80s, but particularly the 90s, when UN peacekeeping gets back, um, becomes possible again after the end of the Cold War. Canada effectively contributes to every peacekeep, UN peacekeeping mission there is from 56 right through until the mid-90s. Yeah. And, and again, partly that is, well, it was easy to contribute to Yugoslavia because we, had, we still had our NATO forces in Europe. So that was part of it. But we also contributed to Rwanda. We contributed to the, um, the Horn of Africa operation under the Americans, authorized by the UN, but not the UN mission itself, UNISOM, but UNITAF. Mm-hmm. We know what happened there, the, the, the airborne brigade group that was deployed yep. and really did complete 95% of the mission that they were assigned, but had also, you know, had some real issues that were not well addressed. And we, we sort of know what happens, right? Yes, absolutely. So, so Canada, you know, how was that mission sent there? There was supported by uh, the Navy, right? We had logistic supply ships that helped with that. We've had frigates in that that area of the world. So throughout the 90s, into the 90s, um, Canada was there in peacekeeping. However, from about the middle of the 1990s through basically to today, today Canada has really let its, um, uh, its, its appetite for assisting in UN peacekeeping missions declined considerably, right? It's not one particular government that goes back to Chrétien right through the Harper years to today. Mm -hmm. Canada is not really a player on the ground in most peacekeeping operations, but the Navy has been a big player in um, let's say the Red Sea Gulf of Aden 
Western Indian Ocean um, in a big way since the early 1990s with the support of the Somali operation through the post 9-11 global war on terrorism. And again, it's not something that Canadians uh, really know well how right. active the, the Canadian Navy, the RCN, as with some support from the RCAF, have been active in this region of the world, which is now the center of attention yes. today with the Red Sea ship, shipping crisis. It's very fascinating because, um, you know, and we were talking a little bit about this before the, before we started the show, but um, how it feels like sort of uh, resources given to the military ebbs and flows, you know, and, and this isn't a, a left or right thing either. I don't, I, I, I don't think it's a liberal or conservative thing. It's a geopolitical thing, whatever party's in power. And sometimes there's these massive boom and spendings and sometimes there's these very significant declines. And it's interesting because the nineties are such a fascinating decade because you have this, the, the collapse of the cold war, the end of the cold war in 89. And there's this wonderful naivete about this this era of peace we're going to usher in and you know the west can break up fights everywhere we go and it's fascinating because it is africa where canada's peacekeeping myth is shattered uh in terms of the public eye and and even though peacekeeping itself had changed so dramatically since unef back in 56 57 but nonetheless it's the 90s that really shatters it and and it seems that canada does actively withdraw from the peacekeeping environment in the aftermath of Somalia and then Rwanda and even Yugoslavia throws, you know, it throws a lot of wrenches into this idea of what are we doing? Are we actually, who's, who are the good guys and bad guys? So the nineties is this really wild period where peacekeeping sort of collapses in front of us. And then, and, but yet you're saying that we still have fairly active Navy operations going on during this period. Could you expand a little further on that? Yeah, for sure. So, so in that, in the global war on terrorism period after 9-11, um, Canadians, of course, did get significantly focused right from that first deployment of the, the PPCLI battalion to, F, to, to Afghanistan, right through to the point where we have, you know, combat operations, you know, we have tanks on the ground, we get Chinook helicopters. So this period from basically 2001, 2002 to 2011, plus the, the, the training period of 2014, mm-hmm. Canada's really focused on this ground-based deployment, the army leading with some support from the RCAF uh, in Afghanistan. But the Navy um, was really active in support, in direct and indirect support of the global war on terrorism mm-hmm. in that entire region. Mm-hmm. So, so Canada is an early contributor to, you know, sending frigates, you know, very quickly, three frigates, uh, which we could not possibly today deploy three frigates anywhere together in the world today. We just do not have the frigates available. And we have one resupply ship and that's it. And it can't be everywhere at once. But we had three frigates deployed, helping with counterterrorism, um, trafficking of arms, narcotics, etc., in the Indian Ocean, everything from the Gulf of Aden right through to the borders with South Asia, right? So, so Canada was a, an early contributor to that, working with the Americans. It was uh, an early member of what becomes Combined Maritime Forces, which uh, originally is about 20 countries, completely voluntary organization, a really unique uh, multilateral voluntary naval, mostly maritime security organization headed by the Americans, spearheaded by the Americans, but which brings together a lot of countries which don't normally work together. So. India and Pakistan are both members of CMF, wow. right? 
we have a whole bunch of Red Sea countries that are now members of CMF. Egypt joined just a, a year or two ago. I just read today that Ecuador joined this week. And so wow. it's now the 40th country that's part of CMF. CMF. What does CMF do? It's focused on effectively the Western Indian Ocean, the the into the Persian Gulf, into the Red Sea, designed originally for counterterrorism operations. So Canada's played a leading role uh, in that since early on. It's had multiple Canadian operational names for that contribution. We've led many times. Canadian has led um, one of its components, uh, CTF-150, which is really effectively the counterterrorism multilateral um, fleet that does all sorts of things. Sometimes we have a commander with no Canadian ships. Sometimes we have a commander that actually gets a Canadian frigate as part oh. of the rotation. So we've had all sorts of our frigates uh, participate in that over the years. There's a long list of all that participation. So combined maritime forces is this way for a bunch of countries to, to coordinate to in a maritime environment to try and enhance um, safety and security in this region. So that's been going on for 20 plus years. And mm -hmm. really, um, Canadians, I don't think, have a, a good sense of how much the, the RCN has been there. And really, that's on the other side of the world. Whether you go from the Pacific or from the Atlantic, that's a long deployment to just get to the point where you're actually now on operations. Right. right. So that's right. pretty impressive. Um, and that has been um that's been a pretty much a staple of RCN activities, as, and, and especially now it's related to the sort of the Indo-Pacific strategy, et cetera. Sure. Right? But because of, I'd say, the, you know, the, the long in the tooth and the overuse of our frigates, we have really um, uh, drawn down the capability of our frigate fleet. And so all our, all our frigates right now are either in refit or they're waiting to be in refit. Right. And out of our 12 frigates, I don't think right now we have five that could actually deploy in the next six months. Like that's how that's how bad it is today. And we only have one replenishment ship, the the, the Asterix, which is, I think, currently now on the West Coast. Um, but that's it. We have one replenishment ship and we have, um, you know, four to five frigates available for the country with the longest coastline in the world which has all sorts of important international commitments it likes to participate in to be a relevant player for global security. And not to mention the Arctic, which no one talks about anymore. And yet, you know, <laughs> talk about needing a naval presence in this, you know, unfortunately, this, this north that's starting to open up, you know, as well. And that's becoming a reality. You know, I'm really interested. I, I, the Combined Maritime Forces is such a fascinating topic to me. And I think most of our listeners probably have no idea that the CMF exists exists today. I mean, we're talking about an organization that emerges in the post 9-11 era, this global war on terror, but clearly the CMF became flexible in responding, not always, not just to anti-terrorist activities. So you, you mentioned where we, a little bit, there's like Sudan, um, there was a civil war. I don't know if, 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 the, if CMF had anything to do with Libya or if there was um, anti-piracy activities, I think, near Somalia. Could you walk us through some of the sort of these kind of not necessarily terrorist, specifically terrorist-related activities or operations? Yeah, no, exactly. So good thing about international cooperation for one particular function is um, you get all these navies together working. They get, to, they get used to each other in terms of working together on this particular task 
counterterrorism. Well, counterterrorism was highly important until, um, I mean, it stayed important, but it, but what do you end up with in the late 2000s? You end up with the rise of Somali piracy. Mm-hmm. And why is that? It's because the Somali state, as we know, because we go back to the 1992 when the Canadian forces deployed, the, the Somali state had effectively collapsed in 1991 because of a civil war. Um, that was part of the humanitarian intervention that Canada was there to try and help with uh, 1992 to 93, and the Americans were completely out by uh, 94. Um, the country didn't get any better. In fact, it got worse, right? So a 200 nautical mile EEZ in Somalia is not going to be patrolled when there's no state to patrol it. Right. So what happens? International fishing fleets start to impose on the territory, right into the territorial seas, right, the 12 nautical mile limit, but for sure into the EEZs of Somalia. They start dumping industrial waste because there's no enforcement. Mm-hmm. So what happens? Somali fishers, dependent on the seas, start to take matters into their own hands and they start to, you know, at least try to um, enforce enforce some kind of order because they're suffering. But that, with given the, we're already worried about um, various, you know, terrorist groups in the region, we're worried about organized crime. What becomes effectively Somalis trying to self-enforce fishing and industrial regulations turns into, well, wait a second, makes way more sense to capture one of these ships and and ransom it will make way more money than we would as a fisher so we often and i always say that because we often forget why all of a sudden somali piracy pops up in 2008 and who is there who is sort of already semi-organized to deal with it it is combined maritime forces Mm -hmm. so what happens cmf um creates a new task force ctf 151 which becomes its anti-piracy task force in Canada is involved with either directly through CMF or indirectly through other operations with supporting um, both humanitarian food uh, deliveries to Somalia, protecting the ships so they didn't get uh, hijacked and they didn't and, and the food actually got distributed, but also then for anti-piracy patrols and 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 the CMF family enlarges because some countries weren't that interested in helping the Americans with counterterrorism that seemed very much like part of especially after the iraq invasion it seemed like well sure. we're supporting the americans with this ill-fated war in iraq but piracy affects everybody mm-hmm. so we ended up with the enlargement again of cmf more and more focus on anti-piracy patrols canada contributed multiple frigate rotations through that through that period and you even end up in 2008 2009 with the uh, people's liberation army navy starting to deploy a three-ship task force to the Gulf of Aden to fight piracy. Did China join CMF? No, China would not join CMF, but CMF and the Chinese Navy would coordinate activities That's for incredible. piracy patrols, right? So China's not going to join, but China's, you know, they're still, they're helpful. Interestingly, I had to check today, China is now on its 45th rotation rotation in the Gulf of Aden, and they always send two frigates or a frigate destroyer and a replenishment vessel, and they're still there. So so this has been a way for the plan to actually get expeditionary operations and to learn all sorts of things 
Um, they never join CMF, but they do coordinate with CMF on anti-piracy. Mm. There's no evidence yet that the plan is coordinating with uh, CMF on the current mission of anti, uh, you know, counter Houthi yeah. uh, missions. But there is evidence that the the plan is escorting ships through some of the dangerous parts of the Gulf of Aden under the auspices of anti-piracy. But that is actually helping also with getting ships, not just Chinese vessels, but other ships through the Gulf of Aden um, without the Yemen, the, the Houthis firing at them. And I think just let's put it like let's f- highlight this fact that, yes, the, the Chinese are not joining CMF, but even they can get on board to a global response to piracy because any and this is and we'll get to this in a second but I, there's another question i want to ask before we get to the current day but it is worth pointing out that it seems to be a, a lightning rod that everyone can come around together because nobody wants international shipping disrupted not the chinese not the americans not anybody and thus an, an anti-piracy operation seems to be a big sell for even you know quote unquote enemies or antagonists to come together and at least operate peacefully in the same theme Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Peter. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, like I said, Pakistan and India working together right. in CMF. Um, working, I mean, and th- both of those navies have and countries have their own relationship with China. So there can be all sorts of you know, they've done joint exercises. There can be all sorts of cooperation that helps to link this American-led, you know, coalition with the Chinese, and the Chinese can have no problems sort of being seen to be supporting international order through anti-piracy patrols there, even if the United States Navy and the plan are absolute rivals in other places like the South China Sea or the Taiwan Straits. It's just a a sign that because, you know, two-thirds of our world is ocean and it's hard to, you know, really sovereignty only extends officially 12 nautical miles offshore. You know, EEZ is not complete sovereignty of the country whose EEZ it is. So we absolutely need interesting complex also uh, adaptable ways to in, to enhance maritime security because it's one of those public goods that everybody benefits from and if there's one bad actor or in this case let's say two bad actors that are impacting that um, everybody is affected not mm-hmm. just a handful of states not just israel the united states which the houthis say are their particular targets everybody's being affected Absolutely. That's well said. Before we get to the final discussion of what's going on today, I would like to go back to 2007, where NATO does an exercise where they circumnavigate the continent of Africa, and, and a Canadian ship takes part in that. Could you, could you tell us the story of this? Yeah. So, I mean, Canada, of course, I mean, we're talking about Africa, but Canada has always, you know, contributed regularly and commanded often um, all, you know, contributed to the standing naval forces that NATO maintains. They have two basically frigate groups plus two minesweeping countermeasure groups that they have that are always deployed. And Canada is often participating in one or more of those. Well, 
back in 2007, and this was the first time that they had done this, the NATO standing naval force, uh, I'm not sure if it was one or two, it was one of them, um, including the HMCS Toronto, thought that as part of their of their their patrol, just their regular patrol, they would actually circumnavigate the entire continent of Africa. And and again, 2007 is a period where um, you're into the global war on terrorism, but you you have some issues in Africa itself which are problematic. You know, you're, this is even before piracy pops up, but you have issues in Sudan. You have issues. Um, there's there's civil wars that are coming to an end in parts of West Africa, but it's also um, it's just a an illustration of NATO's ability to again, from one perspective, to um, deploy power, but mm -hmm. also just to, to to have a presence. Can NATO actually uh, do this? A bunch of different navies working together on this long mission um, just to show that NATO has that kind of capability. And 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 again, Canada was part of that uh, that mission, which was you know highly successful. Stopped at very many um, African ports, and um, you know, in a cooperative way, etc. Right. And I and I, not that that's happened much since, but now if we think about, I mean, that was way back in two thousand seven. Maybe stuff like that should happen more often because mm -hmm. what are we facing today? We're facing now that. 30, 40, 50% of shipping that was going through, you know, the large ships that were going through this up the Red Sea into the Mediterranean through the Suez Canal are now going around the Horn of Africa. Right. And so there are all sorts of issues related to port access, refueling. Um, is there search and rescue capabilities? What if somebody has an accident? Are those, you know, is that capability to help African countries in, in the event of these kinds of pressures does the world have those kind of capabilities? Right. And again, um, we're already seeing that the United States Navy itself is being stretched yes. with this this campaign in the Red Sea. The British are being stretched. The Canadians can't send a frigate. And a couple of other um, European navies are contributing. But that even for this non-state armed group threat, that our naval capacity at the levels of frigates and destroyers, which is really what you need to be able to, to participate in this, NATO is stretched. And that's not a good look no. when uh, we are facing probably the most dangerous period in international affairs that it really, in my lifetime, and I was, you know, I was preparing for Cold War combat against the Soviet Union. Yeah, that that's really well said. So maybe let's let's then... Give us a bit of background on what's going on in the Red Sea right now. Why, why are these our allies and other nations deploying uh, to the Red Sea? What's give us sort of the the, the kind of brief background of the Houthis and, and what's actually happening? Sure. So if anybody looks at their map, they know that there's there's only a handful of really important commercial shipping check choke points around the world. Um, as somebody who focuses on Africa, I know that there's effectively four in and around the African continent. Right? There's Gibraltar. There's Suez. Um, there's effectively the, 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 the South, you know, the, the, the Cape route, um, and the, the Bab al-Mandeb, which is the entrance to the Red Sea into the, into the, uh, to, to, if you're going North into the, into the, to get through the Suez Canal. Well, right there, you have a very narrow area, um, with two-way shipping, but very narrow. And Yemen is on the 
the right, you know, the East Coast and Djibouti and Eritrea um, and Somali land are on the sort of the, the, the African side of that. And Yemen has been in a civil war, effectively in a civil war situation since 2014. Mm-hmm. And the Houthis have um, this, they're kind you know, they, they have a very specific uh, Shia Islam interpretation, which um, is not the same as the Sunni Wahhabist uh, fundamentalist radical version, but it's a, it's a Shia fundamentalist specific way of looking at the world. And they have been effectively the de facto state in Western Yemen, which includes the biggest city, Sana'a, and one of the most important ports, Hodaida, uh, that, that are directly on the Red Sea side. And so the Houthis, again, they fought a, they took over power during, you know, sort of the remnants of what we would used to call the Arab Spring or the Arab Awakening. They have effectively control about probably about a third of Yemen, but it's the most densely populated part of the country. Other parts of the country are, there's various groups. There's two other main groups, the, the recognized government of Yemen, plus another organization called, I think it's the STC, who are both anti-Houthis. But the Houthis, because they have been in power in this area in Sana'a for now a few years and effectively fought off the Saudis and the Emiratis during a war where the Saudis and Emiratis were using F-15s and all sort of modern equipment and modern weapons supplied by the West. They feel that they have a, um, again, I'm not not an Islamic scholar, but they do feel like God is on their side. Right. Interesting. And as Iran supported this group uh, for the last you know, few years against the Saudis. So effectively, you have a non-state armed group that, that operates um, an, an extensive missile array of which um, most countries could only dream of actually possessing. So mm. it's, really, it's really kind of bizarre. So this capability of the Houthis, who are sitting right looking over the Red Sea, has been developing with Iranian support for about five, six years in terms of this anti-ship missile, anti-ship ballistic missile, uh, UAVs, drones, as well as ship, ship-based ship um, IEDs, right? So they've been developing this capability for a long period of time as part of their own efforts to protect themselves against the Saudis, of course, but also with the Iranians um, as part of extending out Ar- Iran's ability to influence the world. Right. So the Houthis are not just a, people say, well, they'll just do whatever the Iranians say. No, you can't tell the Houthis what to do. But what the Houthis are doing does not um, impact or is not necessarily bad from an Iranian perspective. Absolutely. We have this war in Gaza. We, you know, we now this sort of which has galvanized so much of the Middle East, even and especially when things were kind of looking like there was a bit of a detente between Israel and certain Middle Eastern countries. Now, of course, this war has galvanized the Middle East, and we see these Houthi attacks on shipping. What what, what is going on with this, and why is this such a concern to the global order? The Red Sea, uh, the Red Sea, which again leads up to the Suez Canal, accounts for, and the, these are estimates, but accounts for. 12% of all global shipping, commercial mm-hmm. shipping, but 30% of all global container traffic. So 30%. So three out of every 10 container ships 
on their regular runs will go through the Suez Canal. And that's coming back and forth, maybe, you know, from China, Southeast Asia, et cetera, to Europe, and maybe even going on to North America. So that's a lot of shipping. <clears throat> Egypt gets seven to $10 billion a year from the fees going through the Suez Canal. So for Egypt, they want ships to go through the Suez Canal, and it's it's better for the environment because ships are going, you know, not burning as much fuel to go as far, et cetera. So important. We know that the, the Red Sea, the Suez Canal is an important choke point. The Houthis, this isn't the first time. So the Houthis have been using their capabilities previously to um, attack the odd ship, to make a political point here and there um, before they started doing this in earnest in November of last year. So this isn't something that's absolutely new. But the Houthis, and maybe with the maybe or maybe not with the urging of Iran, have been able to say, look, we are going to help the Palestinian people by um, eliminating Israeli the Israeli option of using the Red Sea. So that, that's going to help with reducing the Israeli military effort. We are going to say any Israeli-related ship, any Israeli-related cargo, we're going to target. And we're doing this all until there's a ceasefire in Gaza, right? Mm -hmm. So this is the argument that they put out there in the world. Um, and and really, many people um, are completely buying into this argument that this is the, the, the Houthis are doing this because they're the purely humanitarian basis to help the Palestinian people. And of do they care about the Palestinian people? Yes, to a degree, yes. But the Houthis are in a, in a struggle to maintain power and relevance in Yemen. And so part of this is playing on public attitudes, both at home and abroad, to make right. themselves look bigger, to, to play on, you know, we've been hammered by the Saudis and the Emiratis, we survived, we've fought off all the other Yemenis, we, fought, we fight against sometimes against Al-Qaeda, although sometimes they fight with Al-Qaeda, but whatever. Um, so there is all sorts of domestic and international political benefits for them to say, we are going to use our newfound capabilities to restrict shipping in the Red Sea, um, targeting only those ships which would necessarily help Israel. Well, early on, it was clear that they were starting to target ships which had no connection to Israel that anybody could figure out, right? So the idea that it was purely about targeting that... Um, was already a little flimsy. Yeah. Um, impacting in the West, impacting the United States, poking their nose. Absolutely. The Houthis love doing that. So that, that's part of it too. The thing is, um, it took a long time for, you know, there was the first sort of major uh, event that we remember is the Houthis actually landed on, using helicopters, they landed commandos on a, a, a ship car, a, a car carrying vessel, although it was empty. And, basically detained it, took it hostage, put it into its port, and it's still there. The Galaxy Leader is still sitting there after two months. But since then, they have started to use, as we said, all sorts of missiles and UAV technology and sometimes small boats to target various vessels, many of which had an Israeli connection, even if tenuous, or American shipping, but many of which had no Israeli connection that anybody could figure out. And that has escalated to the point where we've had something like it's now between 30 and 40 different ships have either been targeted doesn't mean that they were hit but that there were attempts and the, the missiles hit hit the sea or 
We've had missiles that hit ships. We've had drones that had hit ships. We've had U.S. destroyers, British and French destroyers, frigates, shoot down incoming missiles. But there's been almost, I think it's around 40 separate attacks in the last two months. So what we have seen is a response by the commercial shippers to, um, for many of them, to not go through the Red Sea. So what does that mean? Prices for containers are going up. Prices for insurance, for fuel, et cetera. It's taking two to three weeks, sometimes, well, let's say one to two weeks longer to get to the port where you're supposed to be. If we think back to 2021 and the Suez Canal getting stuck, closed for six days, Mm -hmm. and the chaos that led to in global, you know, this is during COVID, which didn't help, but the chaos that led to in terms of logistics, um, we're two months into this. And there is no end in sight. Yeah. And and the sh- and even though that there was an under there was a there wasn't there was a overcapacity in shipping leading up to this, the the impact on prices and availability of goods is already impacting various companies and countries around the world. Yeah. So what what was the response? The response was first of all, let's mobilize CMF because it already existed. So. And interestingly, CMF had created, we already talked about CM, CTF 150 and 151. Mm-hmm. Well, last year, no, well, not, not, not in 2022, um, with the urging of the Egyptians who had just joined CMF that year, or 2021, 2022, CMF created at CTF 153. Mm. So this was in 2022, 2023, earlier, they created a task force to look at the Red Sea, maritime security in the Red Sea. This is long before the Houthis started to throw missiles at everybody. And it was precisely because people were becoming concerned, particularly about the Houthis' capabilities that were being constantly upgraded by the Iranians. So there has been a long worry about this capability of the Houthis, and you just never know when they were going to use it. And now they've found an opportunity and a justification to use it um, where it would have significant impact. So unfortunately, and again, there's lots of complaints here about what the White House, how the White House has handled this and how CENTCOM has handled this. Instead of just leveraging what already existed, CTF-153, they decided eventually to create this whole new operation, Operation Mm -hmm. Prosperity Guardian. And... Now, by having this new operation, which is sort of under CMF, but something new, you had to ask a whole bunch of countries, well, are you going to commit to this? Well, a lot of the Arab countries, including Egypt, which are part of CMF, including the Saudis, didn't want to be named as being part of us Prosperity Guardian because it would look like they're supporting the Israelis. Wow. So, so the Americans have really not handled this very well at a political level. Um, but the 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 actual impulse and the requirement to increase military capabilities of, let's say, CMF and the West, well, not just the West, but other countries in this region was absolutely necessary. And so um, Canada announced it was going to be part of op- proper prosperity um, or op- OPG, we call it, and uh, decided they were going to send three additional staff officers to the HQ in Bahrain. Um, to join other ones that are already there. So, you know, there's Canadian staff officers and CENTCOM, CMF, some of the task forces, uh, but that's it. 
There was no announcements about frigates. There was no announcements about um, maybe a CP-140 Aurora going over and doing ISR, which we've done before in the region under CMF. And again, that tells us something about the two things. We don't, Canada currently doesn't have um, a frigate that could actually go because we have so few that are available and they're already dedicated particularly to NATO-related operations. But secondly, and this is what the horrifying part is, Canada did have a task force go, the, go through the Red Sea in April 2023. Just happened to be there when Sudan civil war started. And that task force, which I think was the Montreal and the Asterix, helped with the evacuations of Canadians and others out of Sudan because it just happened to be in the Red Sea. Again, that was in April 2023. But that was a, a low-risk environment where nobody was targeting ships, right? So that was, that was okay. The thing is, the risk environment, given this non-state armed group, the Houthis, and the weapons that they have, would unfortunately overwhelm the current fit, the capabilities of our frigates. Wow. And if we don't, as Canadians, um, be really concerned with that, um, we are missing what is going on in the world. Our frigates are just, it would be unsafe for our frigates to be within, you know, 20 to 50 kilometer nautical miles of the Yemeni coast, given the sometimes waves of various types of weapons the Houthis had been able to apply against both naval vessels and commercial vessels. It just would be unsafe for Canada to be there. And that's, unfortunately, um, I'd love to talk to a naval officer who would go on the record and, and fight me on that. But I'm, I just don't think given that risk, that threat environment, Canada's frigates would be useful and useful there. And that's, that's not a good thing. Well, I, and, and I think what's scary about that is that a non-state actor can thus develop a weapon wep, or utilize weapons platforms that could threaten, you know, what, what is a G7 nation and which thus should have, you know, the technology and, and the, and the capabilities to at least, defend against what one would think would be non-state actors who don't have access to the modern, modern technology, but clearly they, they, they've been able to cover the gap there. Um, I think it is, it, it is just, it is very concerning that we live in a very dangerous time. Uh, we have China ascendant. Uh, we have this Taiwanese election. You know, we have threats, obviously the continual threats to Taiwan that China makes. We have, of course, the war in Ukraine. Now we have Gaza, and now we have the Red Sea. I mean, we are talking about an extremely volatile geopolitical environment. And it is concerning that Canada, and this seems to, I mean, sadly, this seems to be a constant pattern. We are never ready when it comes. We always have to sort of catch up once, once frankly, shit hits the fan. And it's hitting the fan. And we are realizing, and this discussion about the Red Sea shows us very clearly, that we're not, we're not ready for all of this. We're not ready. And... Unlike gearing up for either the First or the Second World War, these current conflicts, you can't build an F-35 and train everybody to fly it and maintain it in two or three months. Right. It takes years. It takes a decade, right? Um, you can't build a ship quickly. And Canada can't do anything quickly. We know right. that our defense procurement has always been a disaster, and that's really something that we got to work out. Um, but that is really concerning because you just don't have the time in this kind of environment to have months and months to recruit, train, deploy 
um, because you don't have the equipment. Everything's more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And Canada is, unfortunately, although we're, we're slowly catching up, um, Canada is way behind on the, inter- and on the integration of UAV technology into every branch, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. And, uh, and what we've seen both in, let's say, first in the Azerbaijan-Armenian war back a couple years ago, but now particularly in Ukraine and even in the conflict in Sudan, in the civil war in Sudan, the use of small-scale UAVs, mm-hmm. right, from the very local tactical level to the more strate- operational or strategic level use of UAVs is tilting the balance. And it's tilting the balance in particular um, operations. It's tilting the balance against or for certain, um, um, let's say, uh, equipment to be used, certain capabilities. And the the Houthis are the first ones that are really showing the the threats that are, are, are there now for UAVs uh, used at sea. And yeah. a... And a, and a when you can launch a twenty or thirty thousand dollar, a series of twenty or thirty thousand dollar UAVs, and a frigate has to fire a two million dollar missile to take out each one, yeah, you know, eventually the money runs out, but the UAVs don't. That's right. That's and, interesting. And, and we have to learn some of these lessons. And I, I just, I know that there's probably in the forces that are learning some of these lessons, yep. but pushing that up to actually speed up the, yes. the the procurement process is just, it doesn't seem like it's happening. Uh, and finally, is there there is a bit there is procurement occurring at the moment though? Is there not? We have put in orders for a new not new fleet, sorry, but we we do have new vessels that we are that like that are coming out later. Of course, they're not going to be here in time for for what's going on today. But we do have a procurement process going on here to upgrade our naval capabilities. Correct? Absolutely. Um, and and the, the only I mean, sort of the positive thing right now is we are getting the AOPS um, in, which are the Arctic Patrol vessels. We have. Two in service, two that are, are working up, two are that are in construction, right? So that's happening. One of the one of the AOPs right now is on Operation Op Carib in the in you know in the Caribbean. Of course, you think of the Arctic Patrol vessels in the Caribbean, but you know, but they they're not going to just always be sitting in the Arctic. So so and those ships are not small. Like they they are they are fairly large vessels. They don't have a lot of let's say war fighting capability, but you know they have some useful capabilities. However. We have, like I said, our, basically our warships are 12 frigates, of which less than half are remotely capable to be deployed within three to six months, because half of them are in refit, waiting for refit. We don't have enough sailors. Um, they have to, you know, it's very fine-tuned in terms of how many we can send and where we can send them. Yeah. So even once they're refitted, they will have a, they'll have more capability. But the follow-on, which is our basically the, our, our new uh, surface combatant, designed around the Aegis system, which will be highly interoperable with the U.S. Navy, yep. we're not going to see any of those on the water for a decade. Yep. So, you know, our, our Navy, which 12 vessels was never enough anyway, um, five or six is really not enough. The AOPS is going to help a little bit in the short run, but not with, I wouldn't want to send an AOPS to the Red Sea under this environment if we don't want to want to send a frigate. So there is something happening, but this idea that we have to, again, build all of our ships in Canada. Um, other navies around the world are saying, yeah, okay, but maybe the South Koreans, the Japanese, or the Finns might want to help us and build some hulls because they're really good at it and fast. And then maybe we want to add, you know, we can kit it out back in Canada. We need to get more hulls quicker 
And I don't think anybody's thinking about how to do that in Canada. When the global maritime space is threatened, even in a by a non-state armed group actor, there is global implications and we need to be more aware of that. And as a, as a trade-dependent country, Canada needs to be playing a bigger role on global maritime security. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends.